All right, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Dear God in heaven, we thank you so much for um, this semester and the things you've taught us from your word and the, the times we've been able to share um, from the very beginning and, and talking about the great praises that come from uh, those glorious benedictions and doxologies in the, in the letters of the New Testament to, to where you have brought us now and just revealed amazing things about the, the true and sweet attitudes of, of your people. We pray that you would help us to, to apply these things, to think on these things, and to never be the same because of these things. I pray now, as we look in your word once again, that you would be uh, gracious and, and help us, especially through your word. To understand that the the path that you have for us, and to understand what obedience and and the joy that comes from it looks like, and we pray all this in your Son Jesus' name, Amen. Um, this is, in my plan at least, the end of this series. Um, and for those of you who don't know what series we're in, I'll just summarize it for you again. We've been talking for the last couple of weeks. Just, just kind of like moving our way randomly and following just topics, really. But we've been looking at the sweet attitudes of the Christian. And, and I've used that word intentionally. I, I truly think um, these are sweet attitudes that produce uh, sweet behaviors that are a, a testament to the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, we started off by talking about the sweet attitude of thankfulness. Thankfulness is a wonderful attitude. It is a, a gift of God's grace, and it responds to God's grace, and it is a protection against so many of sin's lies to be intentionally thankful for all the good things that God gives you. We, we also talked about the sweet attitude of self-control and how it is like having a life that has home security because the life without self-control is the life with its front door wide open. And we also talked about the sweet attitude of discernment. It's the ability to see life's moral choices clearly. It's not confused about moral issues, but it knows exactly what to do and how to live to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the the strange but sweet attitude of anger, and it's the capacity God has given us to love God, to truly love God, and to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. It's the capacity to fight and kill sin. And last week we also talked about the sweet attitude of patience. It is the heart with a long nose, if you remember. It is the heart that is long-suffering and enduring. It's not just a, a heart that decides to be patient just when the times are tough. It's a, it's a heart that is constantly, constantly long-suffering and patient towards those around us. And tonight we're going to look at our final attitude, and it is generosity, the sweet attitude of generosity. Once again, th these aren't really like the essential attitudes of a Christian, because I've intentionally left out very essential ones. These are ones that I am most interested to learn for myself. And I, the, the essential message of, of all of these attitudes has been this. This is, the basic, uh, this is the basic message that's undergirded this entire series, and, it, and it's this. The message of the gospel is too sweet to live a life that is unchanged. The message of the gospel is too sweet to live a life that is unchanged. We are sweet in our attitudes 
because the gospel is eternally sweet to our hearts and to our minds. And this is going to be the last message tonight in this series. Next week I have a a special message that I've been thinking about for you guys ever since winter camp, really, and I really want to share it with you before we start off in this next summer season, before the seventh graders come in. I want to I want to share with you just a message that's kind of been on my heart for a while. So you can come next week for that. But let's let's turn to Second Corinthians. And as uh, Russell kind of alluded to, um, you could consider this you could consider this our final message in the sweet attitudes of the Christian, or you could also consider this part two in the message of Second Corinthians. You'll have to come on Sunday to get part three of the message of Second Corinthians. I know it's very confusing, but I just like they they correlated so well. I just decided to move on them, and just to kind of give you a uh, kind of a review of where we are. In 2 Corinthians, we just were here on Sunday morning. We got all the way up through chapter 7. And I argued that Paul makes, in 2 Corinthians, three moves to complete the restoration of the Corinthians. The Corinthians had been in sin. They had... um, They had turned against Paul in a way. They had turned against the Lord's apostle. They had thought they knew what was best. And and Paul writes this to to help them be fully restored and and grow in maturity. And and he writes and he he basically gives them gives them three three basic pleads that he he makes with them. And and we kind of I refer I refer to these as kind of moves that he makes in this letter. Because it's a little bit of a hard letter to understand in some ways. The first thing he basically pleads with the Corinthians to do is to receive God's grace. That was chapters 1 through 7. Receive God's grace. And, and tonight we're going to be looking at the two chapters in the middle of Corinthians nine or 8 and 9. And, and Paul's basic message here is experience God's grace. And then on Sunday we're going to talk about boasting in God's grace in, in the remainder of the letter. And, and really, this is the part of the letter that we're in here tonight, 8 and 9, where, where Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthians to continue or pick up again the generous gift that they had promised to the Jerusalem saints a year before this. Now, to kind of understand, the, the times were tough in the ancient world in first century um, Israel in particular. This was a, a time of tremendous political upheaval. Um, politicians were coming and going. People were getting crucified left and right. The Jewish leaders were always trying to seize control. And, and this led, of course, to a shortage of resources, which made life tough in and of itself. And then on top of that, there were famines all throughout the, the 40s, 80, 40s. There were famine after famine after famine. It was a tough time to be anybody in the land of Israel in this time, and it was particularly tough to be the hated Christians. But Paul here is is writing to not Christians in Israel, he's writing to Christians in Greece, in, in Corinth, and he is seeking to motivate them to continue to fulfill their promise that they had made earlier of helping the Jerusalem believers. And, and we could look at the motivation like this. Paul's basic motivation to them is this. He says this, A generous life will experience God's grace like none other. A generous life will enjoy, experience, participate in God's grace like no other life can. 
He's saying, do you want to experience God's grace? We've, we've pleaded with you to receive God's grace, but, but I also want you to experience God's grace. A generous life experiences God's grace like none other. And so... I, uh, in this section here, I, I would see this as, as a lot of things going on, but we're going to kind of understand it and unpack it as, as motivations for generosity. Motivations. What's the grace that you get to experience when you are generous with others, particularly other Christians? And to kind of get you a sense for where we are, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to read just a snippet in the beginning of this section and a snippet at the end. 2 Corinthians 8, and we're going to start reading in verse 6. Accordingly, we urged Titus, that's one of Paul's associates, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Just, just a comment real quick. That act of grace is generosity. Verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And then jump over to chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others Will they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's look here at a few motivations for a generous life. Motivations for a generous life because this generous life is the experience of God's grace. Uh, Motivation number one, generosity brings God's proof. Generosity brings God's proof. Proof of what? Well, think about it this way. Your generosity reveals that you are in the game. You are in the game. Now, it's not football season, so I'll ignore my favorite sport and truly the best sport on earth. And I'll, I'll go to a uh, maybe a more helpful illustration to this time of life. How do you know that a baseball player is in the game? There's a lot of people that are on the team, but not all the players are in the game. Some people are on the bench. Some people are the coaches. Some people have the jerseys on, but they're actually in the stands watching, (laughs) eating more calories than maybe some of these athletes have eaten in a week in their hand. How do you know that they are in the game? It's because their jersey is covered in dirt. It's because it's because their elbows are bleeding from the ball they took in the hand. It's because their other elbow is bleeding. Their elbow. Sorry. Uh, never mind. Yeah. You know somebody is in the game because they are huffing and puffing and they are hurting. But you also know that because they're in the game, they have joy. Because let's be honest, this is why they're here. They don't want to be a bench warmer. They want to be hurting. They want to be bleeding. They want to be huffing and puffing if professional athletes do that. They want to be covered in dirt. They want to be working hard. They want to be in the game. Generosity is kind of like this. A generous life is a life that sometimes is a life of difficulty. Sometimes has some some hardships attached to it. But a generous life gets to be in the game. Gets to be participating in the mission of Christ in this world. Gets to be participating in the advance of the gospel. Gets to be securing and helping other Christians as they seek to participate in advancing the gospel. The the generous heart is full of joy because it is in the game. It's not sitting on the sidelines, it's playing, it's participating in the work of Jesus Christ in our world. And this is what generosity is, it's proof that you are in the game. And 
The, the Corinthians' problem, however, was not necessarily that they needed to be in the game, but they needed to prove that they were back in the game. The Corinthians had kind of taken a step back. They unintentionally had kind of decided to sit it out for a few innings. And I'm going to give you just two sentences to kind of summarize a little background from where we've been so far in 2 Corinthians 1-7. through Two sentences that I will flush out with other sentences, but two basic sentences to just give you a couple of thoughts for where the Corinthians were at at this point. Um, sentence number one, sin makes you stupid. One of my favorite quotes of all time, Phil Johnson, sin makes you stupid. They had decided in their pride and in their arrogance to ignore the one that they should have loved and listened to. And they decided in their pride and in their arrogance to love the ones who they should have ignored instead. The, the Corinthians, of course, were full of pride. And, and, and that's what led them to conclude, hey, you know what? Paul's kind of lame kind of a lame apostle, an apostle of suffering. I don't want to be like Paul. I'm going to follow these other super apostles that look really, really cool. But sin, their own pride, their own arrogance had made them stupid. It caused them to turn away from Christ and turn towards false teachers. But also, another, another sentence to summarize where we've come from, sin also keeps you out of the game. It's very curious that Paul, after talking about them receiving him and and rejoicing in their apparent godly grief that has produced a repentance that leads to salvation, as he says in 7.10, it's very interesting that now all of a sudden in in chapter 8, verse 1, he starts talking about this Jerusalem fund again. Like, come on, Paul, have a little sensitivity. These people are trying to repent. They're trying to return. And you're talking to them about money? Like, right? You haven't been to church for five years? I think we should start talking about money. That doesn't sound like the right time to talk about these things. But let me just remind you that this was a promise that they had made to contribute to the Jerusalem believers a year before before all of these problems happened and the sin of their pride really cropped up. And, and, And notice this. Paul writes to them because he wants them to get back into the game. And he's saying, fulfill what you have promised. Because, don't you see this? Sin delays every good thing that you can do for Christ. It causes you to hit speed bumps. It causes you to hit brick walls. It causes your life to slow down. It causes all the joy that you can have pursuing and following after Christ to come to a standstill. Until you deal with your sin, you can't serve Christ. And Paul's saying, I want you to get back into the game. I want you to experience the joy of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin had made them stupid, and sin had gotten them out of the game. But Paul was seeking to get them back into the game through generous giving. But what does generosity prove? Well, it proves three things. It proves, Paul tells us, that you have an earnest heart for God. You see that in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnest of of others that you, that your love also is genuine. Notice there, he wants them to prove 
that they have genuine a genuine heart for God. This is a sign that your heart has been softened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you are eager to give, when your when your heart is wide open to God, you are e- eager to give to His purposes. This is a sign that your heart has been touched by verse nine. Notice what it says: For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That is the gospel message. And when you understand that, you cannot be tight-fisted in your life anymore. You want to be generous. Generosity proves that your heart is genuine. Your heart is earnest. We see that. It it also shows another thing. It proves that you have a full life of spiritual abundance. It, It shows that a lot of things are going well in your heart and in your life. The, the Christians, by and large, that are, are genuine from a heart of true, genuine earnestness are growing spiritually by leaps and bounds. They have a, a lot of spiritual fruit. They have a harvest of righteousness in their life. Notice what he says in verse 7. I don't have enough time to really connect these, but I'm just wanting to throw these ideas out to you and, and let you see them. Paul says this in verse 7, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. Notice it comes with all of those other things. It is, it is a sign that you are excelling in many things. It is right to attach these things together. And as I pointed out for you earlier, giving, generosity, is an act of grace itself. It's a sign that God's Spirit is at work in your life. But also, generosity proves not only that you have an earnest heart for God, a, a full life of spiritual abundance that you're giving out of, but also proves that you have Christ's love for others. And, and that we kind of alluded to, but I want to point you to verse 24 of chapter 8. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. It it, it proves that you have genuine love for your fellow Christians when you give sacrificially to them. And, And this, once again, is the heart that shows the greatest evidence of understanding and receiving the gospel. As, as we see, God, in verse 9, is the most generous of givers. And he gives the most generous of gifts, Christ Jesus himself. And this changes hearts from the inside out. As it says in, in John 1.12, All who have received him, who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, Not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How do you know? How do you know that you're in the game? It's because your generous heart reveals it to you. That's one of the fruits of salvation. But let's look at another motivation. Next motivation. Generosity brings God's pleasure. Generosity brings God's pleasure. This is where we jump over to chapter 9. And you see verse 6, they got that principle of sowing and, and reaping. How you sow is how you will reap. 
And then verse 7, each must, have, must give as he's decided in his own mind. But I want to point you to the second half of verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. This motivates your cheerful giving if your heart has truly been changed by the gospel. So, two questions. What kind of giver does God love, and what kind of giver does God have no time for? Uh, First question, God loves the kind of giving that is done in faith. You see verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The generous heart believes in God for these truths. If I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. If I sow bountifully, graciously, I will reap bountifully. The generous heart that God loves has a heart of faith. But but also, the the generous heart that God loves has a heart of freedom. You you see that there in the beginning of verse 7. Each one must give as he is made up in his own mind. This is someone that gives freely of their own free will. This is a heart that God loves. We see evidences of this in the Old Testament. Exodus 35, 5 defines a generous heart with a word that means uh, willingness, but can also be translated like a prince, right? You don't give like a slave who is forced to, but you give like a prince who can do whatever he wants. God loves a willing giver. Or Exodus 25, 2, a generous heart wills and is stirred up and is moved and is impelled from, uh, from inside. It is, it is happy to give. It is happy and eager to give. It's done in freedom, but also the generous heart that God loves is done with preparation, right? It's, it's, it's man in his heart determining, I want to give this much. And it's not just waiting to be moved by emotions, but eagerly planning its schedule and their, their budget around how they can be generous. That's the kind of heart that God loves, those compar- components. What does what kind of giving does God not love? Does he have no time for? You see it there. He kind of defines it in a few negative forms. It's a heart that gives with reluctance in verse 7. Uh, not reluctantly, Paul says. That's, that's a heart that's pained. It's like, ah, oh, I have to give again? In the Old Testament, the word for stinginess was tight-fisted. Here, have this. Take, no, take it. You can have it. No, you, you can, you can, I, okay, you don't want it, I'll just keep it then. God doesn't want any piece of a reluctant giver, but also we see here, he, he also doesn't want someone who gives under compulsion. And by the way, if you wait until the emotions of the moment, you're going to always be feeling like you're giving under compulsion. If the Corinthians wait until Paul arrives, they're going to be giving by compulsion. That's why Paul says, I don't want you to give under compulsion. I want you to give freely, and I want you to prepare for it before I arrive. Proverbs 23.6 warns of eating with a stingy man. And I love this because it says he is, as he is watching you eat his food, inwardly calculating. That's one P. That's two P's. That took me a long time to make all the money to buy those two P's. Now he's eating three of my P's. This guy. 
<laughs> inwardly calculating, have nothing to do with that man. But let's look at another motivation. That is God's pleasure. That is the kind of that is the kind of person that God has pleasure in. But next motivation um, for giving generously to experience God's grace. Generous generosity brings God's sufficiency. It brings God's sufficiency. I want you to notice a few things about God and about the God before whom you give that we see even here in verse 8. Notice, the God who you give before is the God of ability. He is able, verse 8 tells you. He is able. This is a word that speaks of him being powerful, capable. He is the God of ability. He is also the God of abundance. Notice what it says. He is able to make all grace abound to you. That is a word that means overflow. It's it's an expression of abundance. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And, And notice what he says there. He's giving you grace. That's something unmerited in abundance. And notice how it's phrased. It is all grace. I love that phrase. We see that also in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. He's not the God of a little grace or some grace or enough grace even or a lot of grace he is the God of all grace all grace every grace you need is found in God everything you need for this life as far as grace is concerned is found in him he's the God that is abundant in everything that you require to live the life that he calls you to live God is so abundant so sufficient uh, Paul resorts to an expression of hyperbole. And, and I would say this also. He is the God of the alls. And this is kind of tagging on to the last point. But notice all of the alls that Paul uses in verse 8. There's five of them. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works. It's like Paul's trying to tell you something. Like God is sufficient for the generous giver. And and notice the, the, the phrasing there is really amazing. It is this, having all things always, all sufficiently. That is who God is. So that's essentially saying there is not a situation that God does not have grace for that situation. There is not a time in your life that God does not have grace for that time. There is not a problem where God does not all gracious in. His abundance is off the charts. His abundance is better than your wildest hopes or dreams. We, we said during our Joyful Generosity campaign that if you give sacrificially to the work of Christ Jesus, you will never starve. And that's kind of an um, understatement, intentionally. Because it seems like if you give sacrificially to the work of Christ Jesus, you'll have all sufficiency, which is an amazing position to be in. But let's quick talk about the kind of heart that God is completely sufficient for. 
God is also the God of aims, the God of aims. He has a purpose for which his abundant provision supplies, and he is aiming at certain kinds of generosity. Not just all generosity, but God is abundantly sufficient for some forms of generosity. Now, I want to make a a note here, contextually, what Paul is saying in verse 10 when he's talking about supplying and multiplying and enriching in verse 11 is probably referring to material possessions. God will make you abundant in the things that you need materially. Paul isn't just saying you're going to be rewarded spiritually. He seems to be saying you will be supplied for everything you need in this life to some extent. But it's a certain kind of wealth. It's a certain kind of heart. It's a certain kind of abundance. It's a certain kind of enrichment. Notice what he says in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. Anybody have a different phrase there? The second half there, for all your generosity. Anybody else have it worded a different way? Anybody? 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 Yes? What, do you, what does your say? Uh, you will be enriched in everything for all generosity. So, LSB, hipster over there. Yes, what do you have? To be generous. To be generous. What was your version? Um, ESV. ESV. Notice. Oh, yeah. To be generous in every way. Uh, who has to be generous in every way? Most ESVs have it. I actually came across this while reading my old ESV Bible today. I was like, oh. Apparently there was some debate over how they wanted to translate this. So you could either translate it, you will be generous for all your generosity, which means it's kind of like a reward, a payback. Or it could be you, as the newer ESV says, you will be generous to be generous in every way. And the LSB obviously takes it that way as well. And I would actually take it that way for all generosity. This is a generosity that God is causing to abound in your heart with a purpose. It's not just a generosity for you to sit on top of your gener- uh, uh, your wealth that you've accumulated like Smog, the Great and Terrible, in his mountain and sit on, sit on all of the wealth that God has given you and say, how, how sufficient am I? This is a generosity that is given to people who give so that they can give more. That is the kind of generosity that God gives. He gives to you in abundance so that you can give abundantly to others around you in need. Matter of fact, you can count on it. If you are experiencing abundance in your life, God probably has given you that abundance so that you can provide for someone else in some shape or form for that need that is around you. Notice also what he says in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest. But notice what kind of harvest it is. It's a harvest of your righteousness. You will be in abundance so that you can be in abundance for good works. Right? Now, I think this is where people go very wrong. They say... The reason I sin, the reason I lust, the reason I steal is because God didn't supply my needs. Right? 
But really, the reason you sin is because you're aiming at the wrong things. You're not seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. You're seeking after your kingdom and your things. And when you don't get those things, you steal or lie or sin in some way. I I like what Jesus says in in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Do you see that God gives generously to certain kinds of hearts, generous hearts, so he can supply the needs for people around him? Or to say it simply, those who prove themselves generous will be entrusted with more to be generous with. That is the kind of God that you serve. But let's look at another motivation, a quick one, but one that is incredibly important Number four, generosity brings God's praise. Generosity brings God's praise. Now this might be a very good indication that something is very different in your heart and in your life and in your desires. When this is motivating to you, something is different about you. You have had a heart change. This is motivating. I want God's glory most of all in this life. Notice what he says in verse 11, all the way down through 13. This is going to result, this is going to produce, verse 11 says, in thanksgiving to God. Uh, This is going to not only provide their needs in verse 12, but this is going to cause an overflowing of many thanks to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God. And, And I love verse 13. Why will they glorify God? For your obedience to your confession of the gospel. That phrase is amazing. They they will say this is evidence, this is proof that God has truly changed these Corinthians. They are truly repentant. Christ has truly come into their life and changed them. They will give glory to God because you do something that not many people can do. Live generously. But let's move to our final motivation Uh, These are, once again, motivations for a generous life. A generous life will experience, experience God's grace like no other life. The motivations are this will uh, bring God's proof, it will bring God's pleasure, it will bring God's sufficiency, it will bring God's praise, God's glory. But generosity will also bring God's friends. It will bring God's friends. Now, the Jerusalem church obviously struggled with how to accept the Gentile believers. To them, they were the enemies. They were the ones that were distant. They were the ones that, that had to become Jews to, to receive Christ Jesus. But the grace of Christ Jesus went to them anyway. And now notice how ironic this is, because here we have the Gentile believers coming and providing for the very serious needs of the Jerusalem saints, and it will produce certain praise in these saints. It will produce thanksgiving. God, you have not forsaken us. Even though we are in Jerusalem, 
You have abundantly provided for us. You have been the all-sufficient God to us. Notice, God has been all-sufficient to the Jerusalem church, and they are thanking him for it. It will also produce in them giving God glory as well. God, you have provided for us through the most marvelous ways. You have transformed those who we formerly thought were unsavable, and you have transformed them so much that we now call them friends. What a marvelous thing. What a marvelous thing. And that's what he's saying there in verse 14. They will long for you, and they will pray for you. These are friends. Your generosity will make you friends, but not just friends for this world. Your generosity will make you friends for eternity. That's the kind of friends you want. That's the kind of homes you want to build. You want to build yourself eternal dwellings. Have friendships that you never meet in this life, but meet in the next life. Jesus talks about this in Luke 16, 9. He says this, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, that's money, so that when it fails, footnote, and you can be sure that it will, they will receive you into your eternal dwellings. Jesus is saying, use your money for the kingdom, and by the time you'll get the, by the time you get there, you will be met by people that you have never met, but that have heard the gospel through your bold generosity, and they will welcome you home. Generosity brings God's friends. And isn't this what's happening here in verse 14? And I want you to notice one final thought. Verse 14, they will long for you, they will pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Do you you see what's happening? As As a result... You, the generous person, will receive, you will experience the opportunity to be an instrument of God's abundant grace in another person's life. You yourself will be God's generous gift to other people. You will experience the joy of participating in God's sufficient supply in other people's life. What an experience! that you get to be by a generous heart. Now, I know there's one thing you are all thinking in the back of your mind. David, this is a great message. Has nothing to do with me, because I have no money. Because as a wise man once said, money answers everything, except when you don't got it. How do I apply this? Is this like one of those messages for like 10 years from now? 10 decades from now? Well, here's a few thoughts. Three, real quick. This should make you purposeful in how you go about your future, right? You want to, in some ways, 
make money. You want to be good at it in some ways, but not so that you can be like the world who lives for this world and friends that you can make in this world and houses that you can build in this world. You, you want to be able to be in a position where you can be generous to others. And even if you don't make a lot of money, you still want to be wise with how you manage your money. So even right now, you can start thinking about how can I wisely manage what God has entrusted to me? And how can I even begin to be generous with the little nickels and dimes that I have today? You can save, you can plan, you can think, you can plan for your future. You can seek to not be dependent on others. And be a helper to others instead. And another thought for you. Number two, there, there is, I hope you see this, an obvious spiritual application that you can make. You don't just have money to be generous with. You have a lot of areas where the Lord Jesus Christ has given you abundance. Maybe it is in the group that we share here. How can you be generous with your time here? How can you be generous with the seventh graders that are coming in two weeks here? How can you be generous with your friendships? How can you be generous with your, your siblings? There are lots of things that you probably have in abundance that God has given you many good things, maybe spiritual things that you can be generous with. But it requires you to have, first off, a sweet and generous heart. But let me just say one more thing. These two chapters tell you that you do not need to be rich you get such great joy and experience from generosity. Notice what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that he has given among the churches of Macedonia. Grace is his, his kind of technical term for generous gift. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and be on their means for of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God us. You don't need to be rich to be generous. You need to be generous to be generous. That's all you need. And the grace of God. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this time and we pray now even for small groups that we would be attentive and, and seek to listen to the things that you have for us and seek to understand how we can apply them effectively and sharply into our lives and, and not seek to wiggle out of what your spirit wants to put inside of us and convict us by. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.